0: Welcome to the Dream, Plan, Start, Grow podcast, hosted by Allison Turner. In each episode, we interview real, everyday entrepreneurs to learn how they got their start, what challenges they faced and overcame when starting the business, and what successes each has had. Welcome to the Dream, Plan, Start, Grow podcast. My name is Allison Turner. I will be your host today. The purpose of this podcast is to really explore the entrepreneurial journey, how different entrepreneurs got their start, what challenges they had, what successes, early successes they've had, and any lessons they might impart on our audience. Today, we have Frank McKinney, who has quite the storied journey. Right now, he's a, I had to write this down, real estate artist, Daredevil, Daredevil developer, philanthropist. capitalist, best-selling author of seven books, keynote speaker, also has attempted and successfully finished Badwater. I can't remember how many times she finished it, but I'm sure you'll tell us at, a, at some point, which is 135 miles, which I can't even, I can't even fathom the, you know, a marathon, let alone 135 miles in extreme heat. My first question, just to get started, is how did you get your start? Like, What made you want to be an entrepreneur?
1: I think, you know, it's dream, plan, start, grow. For me, it was start, then dream, then grow, and then plan. (laughs) Uh, Because when you're young, so I'm just a corn-fed country boy from Indiana. I was born on a farm. I'm the oldest of six. My mom worked at a school. My dad was a banker. I went to four high schools in four years. Um, Had a 1.8 GPA out of my last high school and I, had, I was in juvenile detention seven times before I turned 18. So, wow. you know, starting over was what I did first. I, I kind of took out the metaphorical eraser of life, turned around to the chalkboard of life, and erased a pretty self-destructive path as a teenager, as a youth, mm-hmm. even up until I was 18. And then I hopped on a plane with a one-way plane ticket and a $50 bill out of Indiana, landed in Palm Beach. And uh, that's when I... I realized I'm, I, I don't have a formal education. I can't pursue a formal education with a one-point GPA. Not even a community college would take me. I didn't have any money to go. Uh, so, good, leaving Indiana and landing in Palm Beach is more than a culture shock. <laughs> yes. And I saw affluence. I mean, for those of you who are my age, you remember Lifestyles of Rich and Famous. And if you're a little younger MTV Cribs, I mean, you know, it's all about the voyeuristic look of the life inside the lifestyle of those who had a lot. And Palm Beach was it. You know, I'm young, impressionable, materialistic, consumeristic. And I wanted it. I wanted a piece of that lifestyle. I was young and I, boy, I wanted it. And but how, you know, without any friends or network or financing or connections, how was I to get that? And <clears throat> I became a maintenance worker on a golf course, digging sand traps for a living with, with the Haitians. I earned the nickname, the White Haitian. and we'll go to the <laughs> Haiti. that, that connected me to Haiti for life, actually.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, But I was around people who could play golf all day and never seemed to work. It just blew my mind. Like, how do you get to do this all day, four hours a day? And then you go have tea and crumpets crump or whatever you have. And then in the afternoon, you're playing tennis because I was moved to the tennis course as a maintenance worker. So I went from golf course to tennis course, maintenance worker, <laughs> same people are playing in the morning, you're playing tennis in the afternoon. So I became a tennis instructor. I was a pretty good tennis player as a young boy. I picked up the tennis racket, started playing again. And uh, I, I chose to go start my own business called the Professional Tennis Service that went to the most affluent communities that were being built in the late 80s, early 90s, knocking on the door saying, look, you have tennis courts here. You don't have a program. Let me run the program. For, let me put it together a program for you. You don't have to pay me anything. I'll do this for free. Just don't take a cut of my hourly. Wage and Allison, man, within a couple, make 18 months, I was making a hundred grand a year as a tennis instructor. Wow, 50 bucks an hour. I chose to charge the highest rate that a a director of tennis would charge because I was my own boss. So, why not charge the highest rate? And 50 bucks an hour back then was a lot. And I saved my money. Like, I don't, I might look exciting, but I'm not. Like, I, I just bank it. I go to bed early, wake up early. I swore off all unhealthy vices and temptations by the time I was 20. And uh, and that being around, so so when I was on the tennis court, I I, I'm let's say I'm teaching Jack, you know, how to play tennis, and (laughs) Jack's here by the way, and so he's I'm I'm curious as his lifestyle, like how do you get to drive up in a Ferrari and you have a beautiful wife and you have beautiful children and a yacht and a mansion, Mm -hmm. and he tells me his story with a real estate anecdotal ending to it. I won't take all your time with it, but that story I heard from dozens of tennis students that there was. Real estate was their path to their lifestyles of rich and famous. And so I bought a crack house in the late 80s, fixed it up, flipped it, sold it for seven grand. And from then on, we've done some beautiful houses. That's
0: interesting. So how did you, so you bought the crack house, which was the first house, and I've heard the story a little bit before, but how did you scale to what you're doing today, which are these multi-million-dollar houses? How did that journey occur?
1: So the first thing I would say to to budding entrepreneurs or even established ones is don't fall into the trap of scale up. Everything's scale everything. Everybody talks about scale everything now. Mm -hmm. I loved doing the little houses. I never thought about doing more than that. I became a real estate artist by cutting my teeth on for five years. I didn't do a house worth more than 100 grand. I loved it. My margins increased, you know, from $7,000 on the first house. And we were making about $25,000 before we moved on to the oceanfront. But it wasn't until I realized, I, as Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, um, Blink. In his book, Blink, he says to put in, to be an expert, you got to put in 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours if you do the math five at year, five years full time. I didn't do a house worth more than 100 grand for five years. I became an expert at the craft of real estate. Once I became an expert at the craft of real estate, not the business, but the craft, that's when I said I can do more. And I didn't go from 100,000 to 200,000 or 300, I went from 100,000 to 2.2 million. Because I knew <laughs> I, I knew I had, I mean, the, the, the difference was just a zero basically, right? I mean, when I was paying for the opportunity, right. and I knew I had developed enough skill and belief and confidence that it didn't matter the price, It just mattered what I could afford. And at that time, that was what we chose. I bought a house worth 750 grand, we fixed it up and sold it for nearly 2 million. So that the, the message really is don't focus on scaling up, just become an expert at your craft, don't think about tomorrow. Like I, if I lost everything today, I'd go back to doing crack houses again. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just a house. It just has, you know, one or two less zeros now.
0: Right, and you can store and earn money. You just want to earn this bigger payout.
1: Yeah, but it's really, you know, I, I talk about in my book, Aspire, shameless plug number one of about 10 we'll do today. <laughs> uh, I talk about beco- becoming an expert at your craft, becoming, uh-huh. taking an artist approach to your craft. If you take an artist approach to what you do, the, the living and the zeros and the more money and all that stuff will follow. I never, honestly, it could have been monopoly money that I got paid in because I was just so proud of taking like a beat up old crack house, fixing it up, making it the nicest house on the block, selling it for 103% of retail because they were so nice. And Allison, what I enjoyed most of, of all was I didn't think the American dream was meant to be rented. And I saw so many people renting the American dream, first time homebuyers. I said, why don't you, you can own the American dream for less than you're renting it. Right, first lesson security back then. You know FHA yeah. loans, VA loans. So I was teaching people way back in my mid 20s how to own the American dream. And oh, by the way, I have a piece of the dream to sell you. And I would sell the house.
0: And the important piece I hear in that all of that is the passion you had for what you were doing. Because I, many people I've heard entrepreneurs that start a company and they really are starting it because they think it's going to be a big payout. They may not have any desire to do whatever this, you know, the product, service, whatever it is, but they have seen their friend do the same thing and make all this money and they have zero passion. But it sounds like your passion from the first house you did all the way through to what you to do today. today.
1: It's the same. I mean, it really grew because it's more than passion, it's purpose. Like I can have passion for chocolate, but it's not good for me. I have, <laughs> I have, a, I have a passion for my purpose and and through aspiration is where i said yeah i want to be like i you know i'm sitting in a studio full of guitars and you know microphones and drums and jack needs a singer i can't sing i can't sculpt i can kind of paint but i'm not very good i wanted to be i have an artistic bent to me so i create three dimensional art in the form of really beautiful tiny little houses you know 30 years ago that people could live in and now you know, this is, these are three-dimensional works of art on a sun-drenched canvas known as the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, that, you're right. It was, if, you, if you're pursuing this entrepreneurial venture for money, you've sold your soul. That's all you've done. You've sold out your passion. It might work for a little bit, flash in the pan variety of success, but you won't create generational legacy type success until you find that per- purpose for your passion.
0: Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned generational legacy. To something that not many people talk about, did that figure in early in your journey, or is that something more recent? I,
1: I wasn't enlightened to that knowledge early. No, it was just. I, listen, 1.8 GPA. I'm a simpleton, and I just loved taking a beat-up old crack house, and really, it was my canvas. I stood back, and I. I have another, you know, reference in my book about. Um, sacrificing your bottom line for your reputation. Build your reputation first and the bottom line will follow and the profit will follow. So I would in the early days, like I made less per house because I put in three coats of paint or I put on a new roof or grass instead of you know grass seed. I, I made them nice. And therefore I was able to get 103% of retail and they would sell very quickly. My margins were compressed, but the whole time, and I didn't know this at the time, my reputation was building to where now it's like Van Gogh, Renoir, Monet, Michelangelo, if they were still around painting paintings, people would be lining up to buy them.
0: Yep. That's kind of
1: how I want people to be with the houses we build on the ocean, by mm-hmm. reputation first.
0: Oh, that's that's great. I know your wife has been a big part of your success, not only from a partner standpoint, but also from you know a contributor within the projects that you've done. So was she there for the first house?
1: Boy, uh, almost. I mean, kind of, <laughs> I think I did one little house before her. We did hundreds of little houses, by the way. So there might have been one. We've, we've been together for, since 1987. So together, 35 years, married, 32, almost 32. Wow. So, you know, in, in Aspire, ding, number three, <laughs> <in> reference, <laughs> there's a section in there called Love Life and Your Love Life. I put it in there because I realized this. Well, there's a chapter titled The Significance of a Significant Other. Mm -hmm. Because what, if you choose to work with your significant other, it'll have a direct impact on how you succeed as an entrepreneur. And even if you're not in a relationship, you can't go through life alone. You will be in some form of relationship. The section of my book primarily deals with with romantic relationships. But, But chapters like How to Marry Your Guardian Angel, relationship pressure creates the Diamond, like if the forces underneath the crust of the earth, or crushes the union. Like you choose which way right. you use that relationship pressure. And so, yeah, Nilsa, <clears throat> um, she's stoic and quiet, and you need to get her on here because she, she, you need to hear her side of it. But I would be—I've said this before—I'd be in a trailer park, you know, married to the bearded lady in the circus, chewing tobacco, yeah. smelling like motor oil, <laughs> if I hadn't met her. You know, she was my guardian angel, and she you brought out the best in me, for sure. We could do a whole show on relationships in business.
0: Oh, I'm I'm sure. But I've also heard on the, the flip side of some people that have a, a spouse that maybe they didn't work with that weren't supportive, especially when they got started because they were working longer hours. They were really trying to build the business, build the reputation like you just talked about. And the spouse wanted... wait wait a minute you're missing me like I'm right here
1: and that's where in the book I talk about you have if that's your case you need to involve that spouse or significant other very early and make them be a part of it allow them to be a part of it include them so when you're there driving and I hate this word I don't do it I don't grind forget the grinding bullshit (laughs) nobody should be grinding at work but as you're working hard include that significant other from the beginning because yeah and what happens Allison I've seen it you know I've coached and consoled people in my treehouse, you're forced to choose between your personal right. passion, your love life, or your professional passion. It's an agonizing choice. Most often ends up in complete chaos and blows Both up. Side. Yeah. You know, so you 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 don't want to get to that point. Involve them and the book talks about how to involve them very early. So they feel a part of it.
0: Well, I think that's that's a huge detail and I haven't heard it said quite like that, where you involve them you know, even if they're not, you know- In the business. In the business. No, but right. But involve them so they have like buy-in into the business. Yes,
1: they, and you- They listen, feel part
0: of it and part of your vision.
1: You're, they're your, if you're with somebody for life, they're, they're your lifelong therapist. I mean, you're sharing what, 18,000 meals with them or whatever the number is. So if you, like you're involving them in everything else, why not that? Right. You're not, the thing is a spouse who's not involved or a significant other feels like you've chosen your entrepreneurial passion right. over your love passion. And once you've gone down that road, it's really hard to reel it back. So making mm-hmm. it clear that you're not doing that. You want them to be a part of it. You don't have to be a partner part of it, but you want their input. You want their feedback. And they, you want to, you know, obviously, sh- whatever they're wanting to share with you, you want to listen to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, how do you separate between the work life and the home life?
1: Well, there's a couple of practical examples we do. And I, I talk about it in the book where, where, okay, so there's no TV in our bedroom. There's no phones allowed in our bedroom. Uh, when So I work out of a tree house, Nilsa, which is on the property. Nilsa works out of the guest house, which is on the property. When we come in the house, limited, because she does the interiors of all the houses I build, right. limited discussion about those projects. Those discussions take place in the tree house or in her office. There's exceptions to that rule, of course. Right. But it's been a rule that kind of works. It, it's it's really helped. It's helped those moments when that pressure we, here's the thing, we invite and we invite conflict because we know in the end the result will be the diamond. Okay. If you if we welcome the conflict. So so if you and Jack have a disagreement, have it with respect, mm-hmm. because in the end the diamond will be produced. Once you cross over from respectful disagreement, which is going to happen, to disrespectful and slamming doors and walking out, there's no diamond. It's it's going to be it's going to crush the union. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: And then now you also have a daughter, Laura, who now is an entrepreneur into her own right, who's went to what Penn State and was the president of the student body here last year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How did you and your wife help mentor that?
1: Good. I'm glad you asked that because you, if you have or will have a child or children, um, we never expected and she didn't follow in our footsteps. The one thing I wanted to do with my daughter, and, and it's kind of a you know maybe a, an unusual bit of advice for raising children, but I never forced grades. I never made grades important. I don't even know what she graduated college with. And I don't think I know <laughs> what she graduated high school with. Because you're you're imposing your definition of success at that level on them. So if they don't come home with straight A's, that's you imposing their kind of fate on them based upon your definition of success before you get to being an adult. If she came home with a C, I told her, "Honey, that means C. I'm smart." <laughs> That's it. You got a detention. We're going to Applebee's because you're human. And she never got a C, and she and we and she never got. Yeah, she thinks she, she chewed gum once in school, and we went to Applebee's. She got a detention. <laughs> the other thing I taught her early on is how to take risks. I should say to take risks because it doesn't matter your GPA or your, you know, how many diplomas you have. If you don't embrace risk, feeling fear and then moving forward in the face of fear, you will pretty much end up in a nine to five for the rest of your life with no, without, I mean, even your life as a nine to fiver, you will never take an initiative to start something. So what I did with her from the age she was three years old or when she could walk, simple, silly exercise. When we were traveling and we were in the airport, and you have those moving sidewalks. Mm-hmm. I would tell her, you have to go down the opposite way. <laughs> That's great. Screaming and crying, <laughs> she would do it. Sometimes I had to bribe her with like a candy bar, a little toy at the other end. But it's a metaphor for life. Yeah. Little girls don't do this. Little girl, you're gonna get hurt. Little girl, you're going the wrong way. Little girl, nobody does this. It's exactly what you're gonna hear your whole life. Interesting. So for, from the time of three till she was like 15, until she liked to do it on her own, <laughs> I had that instilled on her that you need to take a little risk like that to be, have the world thrown at you and get to the other end. And it, it's, it worked, it's silly thing. She never got hurt, I mean, she never fell down. My, my mom, my mom, my wife didn't like it. Her mom didn't like it too much, but <laughs> we did
0: it. You're more the risk taker than Nilsa is.
1: Right, but it worked. I mean, then she, look, look at this, she ran for president right. of the right. student body New of Penn State. 46,000 kids. Yeah. That takes a risk, that takes guts and courage. And she, you know, she was vice president first and she won president next year.
0: Yeah, and she started her own company right out of school. Right right, right. out of
1: school, yep, she did. So, you know, obviously this little airport <laughs> walks down the wrong way on the moving sidewalk, it instilled something in her. Dead Fred Flying Lunchbox in the Good Luck Circle, my young reader fantasy novel, was based on the fact that I walked her to school every day from pre-K to eighth grade, 1,652 consecutive times, My, and that's not an exaggeration. If I was sick or I was out of town, Nilsa walked her. But never did she sit in the back seat of a car from pre-K to eighth grade to go to school. Not once. Rain, summer, shine, sunshine, storms, you name it. She and I walked. So if you don't want her to go, your your child to go down the wrong way of the you know, moving sidewalk or you care about their (laughs) grades, the least you can do, spend the time because that's what dad did every single school day of her life. I think
0: that's a a powerful thing. And I mean, I think kids really can pick up from, because our school system isn't going to give it to them at this point, at least the public school system. I can't speak for all the private schools, but the public school system is really not going to, it's going to teach them to basically go and get the nine to five job and go out and think in that box that they're basically built around with all the testing, standardized testing and all the wonderful stuff that goes on. So I think at some point you have to figure out how to instill that information. I mean, I know, like I have Jack's daughter, who's my stepdaughter, you know, she's 17 now. So I try and instill some just from conversations, but it's hard. You know, we have a little bit different relationship, but it's hard because she's at that age where she doesn't want to listen to you know, the immediate adults that are around her. So my, my goal is just to keep talking, you know, with the idea that she's storing that knowledge somewhere in her head and down the road, hopefully it'll pop back in when it's appropriate.
1: You know, the way that I would teach, I, I, I didn't talk a lot. I just let her watch. I, I made sure that the example I was set, I, I made sure she was there to see it. So she's what? been going to Haiti with us since she was four years old. She's seen the other side. That girl could have been the spoiledest little girl in the world. We've done very well. We, she could have anything she wants, yeah. but she didn't grow up seeing that Palm Beach life. Like she, she would go to the, to the caring kitchen and serve the meal. She mm-hmm. saw all that. I made sure, I didn't make her go. She wanted to go. And, and, and so that's really, you know, leading by example. I mean, for me to speak it to her, I was a really bad kid. So who am I to give her advice? <laughs> I, I was not the kind of person that you would want to follow. But now as an adult, taking those, you know, those just self-destructive lessons and turning them to a, finding a constructive outlet for them, mm-hmm. she doesn't have that tendency, thank God. You know, maybe, maybe she got you know, Nils's, Nils's uh, more of that personality. <laughs> but, but set the right example, not by your words, you're not gonna listen. It's right. how you act in front of them and what you involve them with.
0: No, I think that, that's an important piece. I'm gonna change directions for a minute since you brought up Haiti. And I rattled off at the very beginning about you being a philanthropic capitalist, and I know that ties directly to Haiti. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in Haiti building those villages, like why there, why not doing something here, all that type of, you know, what's the give back message?
1: So first, it, it starts out when I was at the lowest point in my life. I was uh, on the top of the real estate world. I had just sold the most expensive spec house in the history of Palm Beach County back in the... Late nineties and I'd lost all the heart and my soul. I was, I was a consumeristic, materialistic, more cars in my garage, clothes in my closet, food in my pantry, idiot. That, uh, had become everything I abhorred when I got off that plane, when I was a young kid. And I went to my mentor and asked, why do I feel so bad? Like depressed down and out bad. And he said, you haven't discovered your spiritual highest calling. I'm like, what, what, what is that new age? Eat? I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> He's a Christian, I'm a Christian. You're just talking about spiritual highest calling. So, I'm as I said, I'm a Christian in the Bible. Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is entrusted, much is required. To whom much is given, much is expected. If you're not into the Bible, atheist, Muslim, Hindu, you know, you name the, the, the preference, that is a great life mantra, right? Mm-hmm. It do, it's not a Bible passage for those of you who don't like the Bible. If you like the Bible, it's a Bible passage. And, I, and he said, Frank, you've been, you've been entrusted. You're doing all this other stuff with your professional highest calling that God right. gave you this gift with all these impediments when you were a teenager. What are you doing with the spiritual highest calling? Why don't you put them together? Why don't you marry your professional highest calling with what you might determine to be your spiritual highest calling? I provide housing to the world's most wealthy who don't even need another house. I mean, they have a house right. in the south of France, Italian Riviera, Malibu, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Hawaii, you name it. Palm Beach. What about the people domestically, because that's where Caring House started, by the way, not in Haiti, or internationally in Haiti, which is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, who have, don't even have a roof over their head. You, Frank, should be providing shelter to them. This is the tap that I got on the shoulder, which is the name of my spiritual book. It's called just simply the tap, when God comes down and taps you on the shoulder. That was the most epiphanous moment in my life, because I realized, I had discovered my professional highest calling, but I had no clue that the other even existed. And I was pursuing my professional highest calling to the detriment of what would could have been earlier, my spiritual highest calling. Mm-hmm. So here, actually started in Delray by providing housing to the elderly homeless for a dollar a month. <laughs> so we would buy these old crack houses that I used to renovate and sell, and instead of selling them, I'd rented them for a dollar a month. The dollar a month allowed me to circumvent it being called a homeless shelter because forget owning, owning a, opening oh, a homeless shelter yeah. anywhere. And, the, you know, the Constitution protected me. I could charge you a dollar a month and the, the city could say nothing about it. And I realized, OK, that's great. Then the businessman said, well, I'm paying $15,000 per life to, you know, shelter somebody. Mm-hmm. I realized we could go to Haiti and do it for around $625 per person. Wow. So, <laughs> Philanthrocapitalist, yes, it's a made up word, it's a hyphenated word, but what it really means is you take the best of philanthropy, which is the heart, mm-hmm. and you get rid of the worst, which is charity. I'm sorry, but charity exacerbates poverty, does nothing to make it better. Mm-hmm. There's instances where charity's important, like after the earthquake in Haiti and the, and the hurricanes, that's a very short-lived tenure, and then you get back to the capitalistic side, which is taking the best of capitalism, which is simply money, and the worst, which is greed, and you marry the best of the two. You go to a place like Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. We've built 30. We're on our 30. We haven't even started yet. We're, we've, we're on our 29th village. We're, we're our 30th wow. village is funded. So by the end of this year, we will be have built 30 self-sustaining villages in the last Jeez. 20 years in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. What that means, 13,000 children that were eating mud patties. Flavored with bouillon and lemon juice. Because yeah. you go to our website, you'll see pictures of what looks like a hamburger, but it's dirt flavored with basically oh. lemon juice. 13,000 children that were eating that now have a self-sustaining existence in a beautiful, tiny, but beautiful little house. By the way, I can build a house in Haiti for 4,800 bucks, a concrete Jeez. house for 4,800 bucks for a family wow. of eight. It's no bigger than basically the studio here, but it it's is a mansion compared yeah, to what they were exactly. living in. So that... that that part of your entrepreneurial journey is critical. If, you, if I could have discovered that earlier, it took me a lot of heartache, depression. There was times I thought I'd taken my life because I knew that my, that my then definition of success, I could never satisfy. Because your, most of your definition of success has to do with monetary success, right. financial success. Mo- monetary success will give you two things in absolute abundance as much as you want. Relief and comfort. But that's a never-ending, maddening cycle. You will always want more relief and more comfort. You want joy, skip over happiness and land on uncaused joy. It's finding that spiritual highest calling like I've found by building these villages in Haiti. Because Allison, I probably wouldn't be around. I would have been burnt out. Now it's purpose for the passion. So that's, that. if you remember nothing else from today, it's is fine. That's the last section of my book, Aspire to move you from rich to enriched? Well, I like that.
0: Rich to enriched. Yeah,
1: big difference. Absolutely. Because if you think, oh, it's easy for you to say, Frank, you're rich. No, you're rich. Come to Haiti with me sometime. You'll feel like the richest person in the world. You've already got that. It's just, are you enriched? And the last section, which is five chapters, kind of shows you and teaches you how to discover that, professional, that spiritual highest calling and, and how you, through aspiration, can change the world. And I know
0: over in Haiti, you use all like the people there, right? To do the actual work?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, so part of this philanthropic capitalistic approach and definition is we do not, I get asked a lot of times, Allison, Frank, I can't donate, but I'll go volunteer. Okay, wait, wait a minute. We, you, can, <laughs> you can donate $4.75 and buy a chicken. So give up your latte for a day and buy <laughs> a chicken. Right. So you can donate. But if I said yes to that person, I just took a job away from somebody and hated it. Right. So we have never taken a volunteer, nor have I exported anything into that country. We buy all the raw materials, all their cement, all their wood, all their tin roofs, and use all their local labor that we pay for, not Habitat for Humanity, like trade labor for a house. No, you're getting paid to work on, not your house, this is a contract, It's is a firm, it's what you do over there. Mm-hmm. And then the people are, they do receive the house for free, there's no charge for the houses. Um, and it's funny because for you women that are watching, the women in Haiti receive the deeds because the men are not to be trusted.
0: <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if that I took like place it. over here?
1: <laughs> yes. So when they walk across a little stage and we're doing the ribbon cutting, the women in the household are handed the deeds and it keeps the men in line.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. So it sounds like that kind of refueled your purpose in the professional side. It did. Like finding It that.
1: rejuvenated it. Yep. 100%. I was burnt.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, that's, I think that's a powerful thing because a lot of times we do put all our heart and soul into whatever the business is and then you get to that point where you kind of hit that wall, you've made a, whatever your level of success is for your company and you're like, now what? Like, like, this is it,
1: <laughs> you know? so, so to get there, to get there quicker, ask yourself, if, if you were all, if all of you were here, and I would pick you one, out, one out of the crowd and I would say, so why is it you want to be an entrepreneur? Well, I don't really like my job and I want to start my own company. Okay, well, why do you want to start your own company? Because I think I'll make more money. Why do you want to make more money? Well, because I want to buy a bigger house. Why do you want a bigger house? Frank, quit asking me why, <laughs> I just want to be happy. <sighs> oh, so you just, okay. So you, you think by all of these things you're gonna right. buy your happiness. If you happen to stumble upon something that took me 20 years to find, which is a spiritual highest calling, you will skip over happiness and land on joy and be better at your professional highest calling. Right. You know, I, I you mean, ever since we started Caring House, our houses we designed and built have been the best ever because I had more purpose.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's a key, key piece. And how much does Nilsa play into the Caring House project?
1: She founded it with me. Okay. You know, I mean, she, when we had, we used to take trips where we'd take 50 to 60 Americans over there. That was our primary way to to raise funds is we would do these, you know, people donate five grand, Mm -hmm. they get over, come over and see the house they built. She would organize that, the logistics behind moving 50 to 60 Americans (laughs) into a poor country, white, primarily white Americans. Right. With a machine gun in the front, machine guns in the back, protecting us and, we stopped doing that about three years ago because it just got a little dangerous. <clears throat> I want to quit while I was ahead. You know, we <laughs> yeah, found another awesome way to raise money. <laughs> yes, yeah, yep.
0: And the, the other interesting piece of your entrepreneurial journey, which obviously you've referenced with your book, Aspire, is that you went down the writing world. And I know sometimes people, especially people that brand themselves, and you've done a great job of that, which we'll talk about in a minute, but they do, you know, people say, oh, well, you should write a book. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you wanna be a speaker, you know, because it wins credibility. But is that why you did it? Or did you have a specific calling there, passion about writing?
1: So, yeah, I mentioned in high school, the 1.8 GPA, it'll have been 0.00 if it wasn't for my creative writing class and my math class. Uh-huh. So I speak well, write well, equals well-respected. I knew that from an early age. If you can speak well and you can write well, you will garner respect regardless of how dumb you really are. (laughs) And I wasn't very, I'm gonna say, regardless of how uneducated you are. I was uneducated, not dumb, uneducated. Sorry, I retract that. So without the creative writing grade and the math grade, because I knew I was gonna count money someday. And so I needed to be good at math. I just believed I was gonna count money and I have money that I needed to count. And writing, so we're taught our entire life read, 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 read. And I'm an advocate for reading, obviously. You wanna read my books. (laughs) But writing is so proactive. Mm
0: -hmm. Reading
1: is more reactive.
0: Interesting.
1: So 20 years ago, my first book, Make It Big, 20 years ago this year, my first book, Make It Big, came out. Make it Big, 49 Secrets for Building a Life of Extreme Success. And I used to carry around in my top pocket when I would give a little speech or like a commencement or whatever, a list of 49 topics that I live by and if it was a, like a, let's say a commencement from eighth grade, I'd handpick a few. If it was a business group, I'd handpick a few. And somebody said, let me see that. And I showed it and they said, those are 49 little tidbits. You need to turn that into a book. Three years later and 22 rejections and all sorts of issues later, I finally got it picked up. My life hasn't been the same. I have not carried a business card since that first book came out. So... Yeah. Because of the ease on print on demand nowadays, you know, Amazon, I actually oh, yeah. left my publisher this book, my seventh book. I published this myself because I all the money we make from selling books goes to my caring house. So we make more money if I cut right. out the middleman. I would implore you to believe what Allison just said. Everybody out there has a book inside of them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to, you can print it to put it on your coffee table, and not sell it, but tell your story. You can start with just your journal, you know, like, Collect all your, if you do journal, collect your journal entries. If you don't journal, the, the preferred length of a book is about 180 pages. This is 360, so it's twice the length that it should be, <laughs> because attention spans are shorter. Yep. But 180 pages, if you wrote basically a half a page a day for a year, you'd have a book. <laughs> you'd have a 180 page book. 365 divided by two is 180 yep. pages. So start now. It doesn't. You can find a collaborator to help your sentence structure and conjugation and punctuation, but I, you want to leave your life story, however you want to tell it, it can be fiction, behind when you leave. And I, I would implore everybody to write, write, write your story.
0: So, how important have the books been in the branding, like your branding process?
1: Uh I mean maybe a, the real estate books a little bit, um, because I teach people how to, you know, not burst their real estate investments and. Frank McKinney's Maverick Approach to Real Estate Success was another book, a real estate book. Um, The part for me that I enjoy is this: I've written six different genres. So I like moving. I wrote philosophy, then real estate, then spirituality, then young reader fantasy, back to real estate, Christian romance, and then mindset. So that part has helped the creative side. You know, it's taking on a new, I'm, I'm already working on book number eight, which will be a new genre. So yeah, it doesn't, just pick the genre. And as far as branding, yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look up the definition of author in the dictionary, it says you're on, a, is a derived from the word authority? So there you go. I mean, instantly you have credibility. Right,
0: Oh, absolutely. And going back to branding, because I'm going to segue to that, because obviously you've done a great job of branding and obviously for those watching the podcast, you can see the look. (laughs) Anytime you go and speak, there's your own personal look and brand when you step out to that stage or just introduce yourself to people and things like that. So how has personal branding impacted your career and your life?
1: do a whole podcast on that <laughs> because it's it's you know too many people. I will tell you there's more people out there watching that have more talent, more knowledge, more funding, more friends, more network than I do. But when it comes to brand, brand personal branding is nothing more than amplifying your essence, like the true you to the point where your customers, either current or future, become subliminally intoxicated with you first, then your product or service. Think about that for a minute. I'm going to repeat it. Personal branding is nothing more than amplifying your essence to the point where your customers, either current or future, become subliminally intoxicated with you first, then your product or service. You're not Coke, you're not Apple, you're not Kleenex. You're (laughs) Allison, you're Jack, you're Frank. I'm in a business that's pretty mundane. If you strip all the real estate artistry and like, you know, adjectives away, I'm a developer. I hate that word. You know, I, don't ever call me that word. I wanted to be an artist. So the what you see here is maybe just a newer version of what I would have been wearing in high school. This wasn't manufactured. This was the way, it, but I, I didn't want to co-op or sell out. You know, I wasn't willing right. to trade my soul for any job or any like profile of what a builder, developer, whatever you want to call me is supposed to be. So Wall Street Journal said, this guy looks like a real estate artist. I grabbed it and said, yes, that is going to be part of my brand. So again, and I'm, this is, I'm not trying to do this whole shameless plug thing, but there's a whole section in here devoted to personal branding mm-hmm. right. and how it works and how you can use it to your benefit. And, uh, you know, my, I'm just going to read my favorite. The title of my favorite chapter uh, is, I don't know if you had one. We already talked about taking an artist's approach to your craft, accentuate and amplify your essence, live your inside on your outside. I mean, how many people suppress their inside because society says, you should live right. it on the outside. Yep. Healthy ego. So ego gets a bad rap. Yep. <laughs> ego, he- A healthy ego is a combination of three things. Having an otherworldly passion for your purpose. Like I know that what I do on that oceanfront, I have a bleeding passion for that purpose that I discovered, that professionalized calling. An otherworldly passion for your purpose. The second, believing you're one of the best in the world at what you do. Not the best, because that's unhealthy ego. I'm one of the best at what I do. I believe that. And the third, and this is where people fall short, don't be afraid to tell the world about it. Yeah, that's where
0: a lot of people fall you short.
1: Fall, yeah, you, if you've done the first two and not the third, you've wasted your time. Right. You might as well sit behind a computer screen and punch away all day. <laughs> you have to be able to share whatever that talent is, that passion for your purpose, with the world. Shamelessly. That's not That's not ego. That's just healthy self-esteem.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's true. And I think, you know, a lot of people miss that piece. People don't like cameras. They don't like even just regular podcasts. I mean, I know I've been gun-shy on cameras for a long time because I'm like, ah, it's looking at me and I, I don't really want to see my, I still don't like seeing myself on camera. But, you know, it's one of those things that if you want to move forward, especially in this day and age where internet marketing and all the social media and YouTube play such a huge effect on everything right now. Like it's imperative that you are out there.
1: But t- take her example. So she was afraid of doing a podcast for, for the same reasons. I, in speech class in high school, I used to drink wine before I would give my speech. <laughs> I was so, so afraid, you know, because public speaking doesn't come easy. The things that don't come easy to you are the ones you got to work on. So Allison said, I can never imagine, my, I guarantee you, your voice in your head said, I can never imagine myself doing a podcast but she put herself out there. Fear, the, the sensation of fear is associated with the thought of taking a risk, not with the actual taking of the risk. So when she thought about starting a podcast, she probably froze with fear. But once you got the camera rolling, that fear dissipates. So yes. feel the fear, lean into it, but take the risk anyway you yeah,
0: take the risk anyways, like a key, key piece. And if you need assistance with that, whatever that is. I mean, so for me, I actually joined Toastmasters in the fall of last year. Partly because I wanted to go more towards the speaking route. And I felt that would give me more of a, you know, crafting the platform and more comfort level and things like that, which it has. So in the six or eight months I've been in it it's actually helped me grow and expand and see the bigger picture and see the bigger vision and create this podcast. So that, so I think push through the fear, but there, remember there are resources and tools yeah. out there to help you do that too.
1: It's very clear. Cause I, I, I remember, you, we've known each other for a long time. I remember like your confidence level has gotten to a point where you're almost unrecognizable. I don't mean that as a compliment because you used to be very afraid and, you know, Toastmasters. It's just, it just, it's about building the belief and the confidence that she, like you have, that you can do these kind of things. And once that elasticity called confidence stretches, it doesn't go back. Like it stays where it was. And, you know, I, I advocate to this day when I get a keynote, I'm terrified before that, you know, because it's the thought of what might not work or I might stumble or what, and then once you get going like a roller coaster, it's, it's joyous. you throw your hands in the air and you celebrate and you get to the back <laughs> of the line and you do it again. That's the same thing with taking risk. Uh-huh. No, absolutely. So you
0: have a lot of different pieces, obviously, that you've developed through the years and they all kind of intertwine in some way, shape or form. How do you manage all of that? Like time, from a time perspective and a project perspective, I mean, you have your real estate projects, you have your books that you've written, you have the caring house project.
1: So I'm. Uh, that's good. As I've gotten older, I've become so become so efficient with my time, super efficient. I, uh, you know, this new book is about it's, it's about adversity, and, and this, I'm not going to give the title. The subtitle is facing down adversity when you're hanging on by a thread. Yeah. We have to learn when and where to expend energy, and I know full mm-hmm. well where not to anymore. <laughs> Because as a kind of an empath, I'm always saying yes to things and, and feeling other people's feelings and feeling bad if I don't agree to something. You know, you, my everybody thinks I, you know, I'm my life is not in balance. There's no balance in my life. We were not meant to stay in balance as human beings. Homeostasis is like the grandfather clock ticking back and forth. <laughs> if it stops in the middle, it's not working. Right. So... <laughs> you know, if you're a woman you had a child, you know how far out of balance your life was for a while, but it was for a good cause. When you're starting your first entrepreneurial venture, your life's out of balance. But it's it's that constant swing back and forth. Quit trying to get your life in balance and accept the fact it is not meant to be in balance. Just watch how far the pendulum swings. Out of balance.
0: Right, so try not to get too far out of no, balance. No, because that
1: <laughs> makes you a little, a little stressed.
0: <laughs> stressed. Nutty. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Over the edge. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All of those things. So if you could say one tip that has been like crucial for you when you started that you would share, so not necessarily just in real estate per se, but just in general from an entrepreneurial perspective of what was critical for you when you started, like what would that be?
1: Hold that. Jack? Oh It's a bass. Uh, it like... <laughs> so, we don't need to plug it in. So, we play the bass. We kind of do it like that. Yeah? Just don't hit
0: me in the head. Don't hit the
1: bass <laughs> in the head. probably need a guitar, but I will tell you if I could put this to music, Jack, you're better at this than I am. If this were a song, this would be the chorus. Wait, exercise your wrist tolerance like a muscle. Eventually it will become stronger and able to withstand greater pressure. If I had taken that advice earlier, I'm happy I did it when I did, but my risk tolerance, it's like going to the gym. It's, it's stronger. I still feel the fear. I still, I, actually feeling fear makes me feel alive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know? And I know that if, you, if you're not feeling fear, you're probably going down the, the most stagnant path your life could, you could choose for your life. So exercise your risk tolerance like a muscle, eventually it will become stronger and able to withstand greater pressure would be our song for the day.
0: Interesting that you said that because I'm rereading some of Grant Cardone's book, 10X, and uh, he references fear and he says kind of the same thing about fear. He talks about how fear, like if you're not fearing something, then you're basically not doing anything. You're not. And you've always got to continue to fear because the fear is telling you where you are in the journey and how you continue to progress in the journey. And it's putting you, because then you're moving forward because now you're facing new challenges. Because as you move forward as an entrepreneur, you're always facing new challenges and new you know, blockades come in and you got to zig and zag and figure out which path to go down and figure out what plan B is. And that's where that fear comes in because you haven't been down this path over here.
1: When, when we talk about fear being associated with, with, with risk, risk is always associated with a big change or challenge in your life. If you think about it, you think about taking a risk what is that associated with? Something dietary, physical, financial, relational, spiritual. I'm gonna take a risk in one of those areas. The next thing that sets in is fear. Yep. So you're on the right path. That's what you're supposed to feel. Where most fall short is they stop because of that sensation of fear. Right. And they end up stagnant and complaining. And, and that's, the, that's the differentiator in my life is I feel all those things you know, spiritual, financial, relational, <laughs> dietary. I want to take these risks and big changes and challenges. I'm afraid either closing my eyes or gripping onto, you know, my support system tightly. I proceed through that, that wall of fear. And sometimes sometimes that fear, like it, it teaches you how to sense when you, like listening to fear is a good thing. I don't, I'm not fearless. There's times I feared something and I didn't do it. Because I knew the difference between something that could blow me up, be very destructive, <laughs> too much risk. I was going to build a $100 million house once. Wow. You know, back in 2008, we designed it. I spent a year in Italy, 72,000 square feet. I still have the plans. And I realized, wow. whoa, this is probably not a good idea. We sold the land. And like a year later, the crash of 2008 came. And, yep. you know, thank God. Because I, I, that, was, that was a fear that I, it was best I didn't push through. So,
0: so knowing, so you learn, I think the more you go into the journey, the you kind of learn. You can decipher. Yeah, exactly. Which which one's like a rational, I don't know if rational fear is the right word, but one that's just a, you know, quote unquote, normal fear versus one that's actually saying like, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> like You, you don't want to go down this
1: road. You'll know. It's it's like if you're at, a, at, a, at a, an intersection and the railroad crossings go down. A young Frank, as they're moving, I'm going to beat it. I'm going to go underneath it. I'll <laughs> make it before it's hits the top of my car. That's not very smart. You know, when they start <laughs> exactly. to go down, that's the warning. You, there's things in business that will do that for you. Right. And you're going to say, OK, $100 million house, not, not now. I mean, now it would work because they are selling for $100 million, But 15 <laughs> years ago, that was unheard of.
0: Yeah, weren't quite there yet. Yeah. You were before your time.
1: Yeah, it happens a lot.
0: Just like you were before your time in the whole tennis arena, because now you've got all the clubs that have the tennis <laughs> thing there. Like, yeah, so like- I, I'm
1: glad I'm not still out there baking in the hot sun though. <laughs> Instead of hundred grand a year, I'd probably be up to 120 grand a year, you know, yeah, after exactly. 30 years.
0: Exactly. Um, so if anyone wanted to get in touch for some reason or learn more about you, what's the best? Might place-
1: I use our prop? <laughs> okay. So I would start with theaspirebook.com. Theaspirebook.com, which is, this domain is on my website. So when you get done with the Aspire book, looking at it, there's a sample chapter that I put up there. I also did my own Audible version. I narrated the whole thing. Yeah, I've and heard that. there's that. <laughs> right, there's a, there's a sample uh, chapter you can listen to on Audible for free. There's the reviews, there's the Aspire book tour we just finished. Go there and then um, PC Magazine about four or five years ago called my website Disney on a desktop <laughs> because you can go to Haiti, You can visit our villages in Haiti at at Uh frank-mckinney.com or just theaspirebook.com. You can take tours of the houses I've built. You can read excerpts from all seven of the books. I mean, there isn't anything that, if those things interest you, blogs and articles and interviews and all that, it's right there at at frank-mckinney.com or theaspirebook.com. Okay.
0: So as we wrap up today, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Great podcast. So let's go again. In order. Plan. (laughs)
0: This is his order.
1: No, no, it was plan was first, your order. Dream,
0: dream, plan.
1: Wait, dream first, plan, start, start, grow, grow. In any order.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Take action on one of those, right? Any one of those, do it. Absolutely.
0: Thank you everyone for joining us today on the Dream, Plan, Start, Grow podcast. If you wanna learn more about our resources, please go to dreamplanstartgrow.com. You'll see all the podcasts there as they come out one at a time. We also do a complimentary mastermind on Clubhouse weekly. So currently it's Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, but check the website just to see if make sure we didn't change the time. We have a different topic around business each week. You're welcome to come up to the stage, contribute, share, because I believe we can all learn from each other. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at success at dreamplanstarkrow.com. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Listen to her, she knows what she's talking about. Follow her journey because she's a perfect example if you do the Dream, Plan, Start, Grow, where you could land.
0: Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Dream, Plan, Start, Grow podcast with Allison Turner. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Join the Dream, Plan, Start, Grow community by following us on Facebook or Instagram at Dream, Plan, Start, Grow.